Tonight on A Conversation with Brian, we have author Bill Hall. Bill has written a wonderful new book. It is called Powerful Guiding Coalitions. Bill has served as a classroom teacher, an assistant principal, and principal. And he's also served as the past president of the Florida Association for Staff Development, now Florida's Learning Forward. But we're going to let you hear from Bill himself in just a few minutes as we dive into his book, his career, and all the other things that he liked to talk about in education. And so without further ado, we'd like to welcome to A Conversation with Brian, author Bill Hall. Bill, welcome to the show. Thank you. This is such an honor. It's good to see you. Looking no. forward to it, man. No, I, I am so impressed with you. With uh, I see you on Twitter, and, and you have been so relentless and consistent with publishing or in posting about your book. It's really, really impressive. But what I wanted to do at the start of our show, Bill, is really to get to know you, to have my audience get to know you. And so what I normally do is ask my guests to talk a little bit about their personal journey, their, their professional story, um, so my audience can get to know a little bit more about Bill Hall. So who is Bill Hall? Sure. Uh, I, I'm married to, to Carol. Uh, I tell people we've been happily married for 35 years. And uh, on August 14th of this year, we will have been married a total of uh, 52 years. But we <laughs> tend to agree that 35 have been relatively uh, happy. Um, uh, she was a, uh, she's a retired pre-K handicapped uh, teacher assistant. And uh, we have two daughters, Heather and Stacy, and they're both elementary teachers. And uh, we have four grandchildren. The oldest is uh, a rising uh, freshman at the University of Florida. Wow. And the youngest uh, in July, uh, past July, is seven years old. So we, we've got quite a range there. I come from a long line of educators. My great-grandfather was uh, superintendent of schools in Cleveland Heights, Ohio. Uh, one grandfather taught Latin and Greek at Cleveland Heights High School for 40 years. I had a grandmother who taught in a one-room schoolhouse in West Virginia. My mother was an elementary teacher. Oh. The, of course, my daughter. So we have five generations of ed educators in our, our family. I grew up in Winter Park, Florida, and I attended a small college in uh, South Carolina, Erskine College, and graduated with a degree in English. It was a battle always between English and biology, and English won out by one course. Had you and, planned to be a teacher, or is that just that was a different path for you? Uh, I, I, I really didn't plan. I wasn't planning on anything. I, I originally started out to be uh, uh, in pre-veterinary science, but. Uh, then they said you had to take chemistry and physics and calculus, and I couldn't spell any of them. So I, uh, I said, <laughs> you're like, that's not for me, huh? Said Mr. Hall, it takes a little more than a love for animals to be a veterinarian. So, so uh, I ended up uh, fin finishing with a degree in English. But in, during my senior year, I decided I wanted to go into teaching and right. follow my mother and my, and my grandparents' uh, uh, path in the profession. And, and so I, um, I took a few classes of elementary education in my senior year, but didn't finish with the, 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 the uh, degree or certification. So my first day with students at Sherwood Elementary in O'Galley, Florida, was my first day with students. I didn't have the benefit of a student internship. Really? Wow. Really. 
But he just three years, the fire. Right. Uh, you know, just jump right in. So for three years at night and on uh, weekends and during the summers, I uh, finished my elementary ed certification uh, classes to become certified as an elementary teacher. I taught for 10 years and I love teaching. I, I didn't want to do anything else. I had no ambitions to do anything else. And as uh, Bob Ross, the, uh, the television uh, artist, uh, says, my whole life was a, a, a series of happy accidents. Yeah. It's kind of tumbled through and, and ended up where I am. Uh, but I love teaching and had no aspirations. Who on earth would ever want to be an assistant principal? Had to be out of their mind. Then the opportunity came. I got my master's in uh, administration supervision, and and then I uh, I applied for the assistant principalship. And I was an assistant principal at the uh, elementary level for three years. And I love I love being an, an assistant principal. And I that's exactly what I wanted to do and retire that. Well, I after about my second year of assistant principalship, I said, you know what I. I think with the right conditions, um, I probably could uh, become a, a principal and do that. And and again, I, I loved it. That's what I wanted to be. I had no further aspirations, uh, but the opportunity to become um, a uh, the director of uh, professional development and educational leadership for Brevard Public Schools came and I, I uh, took the chance. And uh, so the last half of my career uh, was as the director of uh, educational leadership for our district. So if you do the math, I spent 44 years uh, providing service for Brevard Public Schools. That's amazing. That that's quite a career. And then you you write a book, um, which I think is fantastic. We'll get to that in a moment. But you know, as I listen to you talk about your your journey, it's not unlike a lot of people where they say, you know, I, I was content at this position. Then, and then I moved to another position. I think it, what it, it speaks to, it speaks to this, this when we talk about, you know, and I think Mike Maddows talks about this as well, endless opportunities and endless possibilities. And we talk about how we should not limit any child. I think it, it speaks to what we do as we move up in our career or move on to different places um, and have different experiences. And when we think that we're content, um, the, the world's everybody's oyster. You know, if, if we can help people um, understand that um, being being content is OK, but it's OK also to to be uncomfortable and move to a different position to edify yourself. Exactly. Exactly. And we don't know who's in our uh, in our sitting in front of us as teachers. We have no idea if my teachers and professors knew what I, how I, my life ended up. They go, oh, that that can't, <laughs> yeah. not that guy. So, and and, and I think that's where your passion comes from. My passion comes from is like, we know that it's in every kid. Like, we're not saying every kid's going to go in, in, they have to be gifted and everything, or they have to have a strength and everything, but they do have a, a passion, a strength. And sometimes we have to help them kind of figure it out. We And then we have to nurture that and then point them in the right direction and just let them go. Got it. Yeah. So let's get to your book. Um, you know, you and I are deeply um, steeped in the professional learning communities at Work Model. Um, you know, both of you know, our, our mentors are, you know, Rick, De, uh, the late Rick DeFore and Becky DeFore, um, you know, Bob Aker, um, who were the original architects of, of this model. 
can you talk a little bit, one, how you really first found out um, or, or were introduced to the PLC at work model? And then, you know, let's, you know, dive into your book, because I think it's really important uh, in terms of sustaining this um, culture um, to make sure that we have the right people in place and the right team in place to really make sure that um, the rest of the school continues to push this process deeper and deeper into the heart of our culture in our school. Sure. Well, just like my journey to becoming a, a director of educational leadership for a large school district in Florida, my uh, my path through the uh, PLC at work process is very similar. It's like who'd have thought. Um, yeah. I, I, I left the principalship in 1992, and this is prior to uh, the publication of uh, learning by doing and uh, PLC at, at work process. And uh, I I was on the um, the host committee or the uh, conference committee for the uh, 1994 National Staff Development Council annual conference. Okay. Just, I had just become the director of professional development and I had the opportunity to join this um, this committee. And we met for about 18 months, and part of our planning for the um, annual event in Orlando was we had to shadow our counterparts in the conf annual conference the year before. So in 1993, I went to Dallas, Texas to shadow my counterpart so that I'd learn my duties and responsibilities for the annual conference in Orlando in 1994. Well, I could also attend breakout sessions. And there was on, one on leadership. The, the man's name was Dr. Rick Dufour. He was superintendent of schools in Lincolnshire. Uh, and so I, I was interested in that. And it was an all day. And I'll tell you how uh, long ago it was. It was on an overhead projector. And Rick had the acetate frames. They kind of yellowed. Yeah. The <laughs> frame. Okay, so I'm dating myself. Uh, some of your listeners are going, what's an overhead projector? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was good. It was it. Uh, we connected uh, as far as not not personally because I was in the back of the room, right. but we connected on um, think concepts that he said I I agreed to. I had in place as a building principal, and this is before the PLC at work process. Yeah. And um, we broke for lunch, and I had a scheduled meeting, so I wasn't set to go back. Well, the happy little accident was the meeting was uh, rescheduled. And so I went back and for the rest of the session and his humor was my humor and that type of thing. But darn it, I had vision, I had mission, I had goals, but it was, it was like a lightning bolt that hit me in the back of the room. I swear it, it a big explosion when he talked about values. Yeah. I almost got up and went, that was what was missing in my principalship. I had pieces in the PLC process, even right. though it was processed, but that was it. So I contacted Rick uh, to bring him in on leadership. And in 1994, he came in and worked with our staff for a summer program. And then um, what he liked about what I was interested in is I saw the PLC at work process as a mechanism for creating leadership capacity sure. in our district. I wasn't focused on student learning. My focus was creating 
capacity and sustainability in the leaders in our district. So Rick liked that my take on it and the, the you know, I kind of came in a side door sure. and not right uh, as a practicing principal with the, the concepts. But the, the thing is, is you, although you said you weren't focused on student learning, you were focused on leadership, but you were for focused on student learning, right? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But I woke up every day worried about who is going, who's going to become our leaders our assistant principals, our teacher leaders, our principals, our district staff for our district. Yeah. That, that, that was my job. And and I could do that so much better with the PLC at work process. Sure. And I was invited to join their PLC Academy uh, that we met for a year. Right. And, um, and then they invited me to apply uh, to become an associate. And, and that's how I got into it. That's this history. So let's dive into your book. I'm going to turn around because you'll, you'll see the, the sticky notes all over your book and Beautiful book <laughs> back of me. But yeah. um, there, there, I, I, I read it. And again, you know, thanks, thanks I've for got one too. <laughs> uh, thanks for giving me a shout out. One of the things that I, uh, I noticed at the beginning of the book, um, when you started to talk about, you know, leadership and, um, you know, not really knowing where to start. You, you, you tell this story called the cardboard box theory. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Because it was really intriguing because it's, it, you know, it's very simple in terms of understanding, but it's, it's very powerful. I guess uh, I've always been scared of leadership. I was not a leader. I never saw myself as a leader. Leader, leaders were born and they were, uh, you know, they they led thousands of people and, and did all kinds of exciting things that were heroic. And I wasn't one of them. I never saw myself as one. And so even as I went started teaching, um, I never, I wasn't grade level chair. I really didn't lead anything. Never, never perceived myself to be a leader. About my fifth year as a teacher, the father of one of my students, he was the president of a civic organization in our community. Right. And the, the, their focus was twofold, community service, but also individual and leadership development. Right. And he he had invited me to attend a meeting. And I did. And I was interested in it, in, in serving the community. Sure. But then this leadership component, they had a public speaking um, uh, course that you went through. And they had different professional uh, growth uh, types of activities and classes that you could take. That's where I started. In my mid-20s, I finally started to see myself gaining these skills like public speaking and leading projects uh, that eventually led to my, my path to becoming an assistant principal. Did you get an aha um, when you were starting to go through that process? Um, kind of like, you know, there there are no superhero leaders. They they we we start to you know acquire skills and and we do certain things. Um, but you started to realize that anybody um, has an opportunity to lead if they have the right skills. And that's where the the theory came from about the cardboard box, because I was the awards chairman of the Fourth of July parade. It wasn't just the Fourth of July parade; it was the bicentennial parade. You can't get any more important. Yeah. Than that. 
I was the chairman of the awards committee. I've never had any, such a title in my entire life. So I was quite nervous about my ability to, to lead this and take a responsibility. So I called the president of the organization up one night and I, I said, now, <laughs> you know, take me through this about be, being the leader of this important right. committee. And he, and that's when he said, do you have a cardboard box? <laughs> I said, well, yeah, sure. I've got one. I've got one out of the garage. He said, take it down to the trophy shop, put the trophies for the first, second and third place uh, parade winners in the box Put it in your car and bring it to the parade site, and then we're going to pass them out. And I said, "Is that it?" And he said, "That's what <laughs> that the, <bit>, right awards <laughs> chairman does." And it was so simple. Yeah. It was. It they weren't asking me to be an officer or to do any anything public in front of hundreds and thousands of people. It was simple a simple act of just being part of the operation and, and sure. serving capacity well one of the things you say is serving and i think that's a big part of leadership it's, it's about us serving and, and I, I hear ken williams say this all the time for you know when he was a principal he said my job was to hunt gather and protect for my my, my staff and then Absolutely. get and then get out of the way yeah people that get in it into it for power or position um they're, they're in the wrong business they're, yeah. they're, they're not going to be happy at all in in the position and that's why this collaborative leadership that we we know so well and we talk about that are in our books and in in our work is so important. Yeah, yeah. In your book, you talk about you know the difference between a leadership team and a guiding coalition. Um, can you look talk a little bit about that? I I think when we start to think about how do we make sure that we get things done um, in our school and not let you know if we have a guiding quote a guiding coalition, are we abandoning abandoning the traditional leadership team and some of the tasks that they have undertaken and i think there, there are some questions and and sometimes confusion on what is the difference we need both we need both and and in one of my tweets are they still tweets now that the yes logo? yeah i'm not sure but we can still call them tweets <laughs> whatever they are yeah um i i i have two graphics of a, uh, a traditional hierarchical organization or, or uh, school traditional school leadership team. Right. And I have one that's linear and it, it's it's flat. And I had one tweet that said, if you want to know if yours is a leadership team, traditional leadership team, or a guiding coalition, look at your agenda. And if your agenda has all kinds of topics on it, uh, and they they, they there's just a laundry list of, of things to do and to talk about. That's a traditional school leadership team. If the agenda is about student learning and PLC processes, that's a guiding coalition. And so the, the traditional school leadership team, um, there's still, we still have to have that. We have to have the managerial side. There's still budgets and schedules and all those kinds of things. But the focus of a guiding coalition is on the PLC processes. And can a guiding coalition, can, can they serve the same purpose, like not the same purpose, but can they, can they, can one team do both um, kind of missions, you know, the mission of a leadership team and the mission of a guiding coalition, 
or are or do they have to be separate or or it depends on the the school it it depends on the school the size of the school the maturity of the teams that work together um mike mattis uh, i asked mike about that and he said what they did at pioneer middle is they had an agenda that had two pieces right there was the plc only okay okay right. and then the second part is nuts and bolts now not every teacher that's represented on the guiding coalition has to be part of that leadership team piece sure. but those teacher representatives those collaborative team uh, representatives, their voice needs to be in the room when the meeting is a guiding coalition. When you um, wrote the book, um, one, why did you feel it necessary? Did you feel that there was a, a void lacking or did you feel like, you know, when you presented or you talked to people that it was um, even schools that were early adopters of the PLC at work model, um, do you feel like there is some, you know, slippage in the, um, in the implementation of the, the process or did you just write it because you felt like, yeah, why did you write it? I, I wrote it for, well, for three reasons. The first reason was I, I believe the one, the height of professionalism is to be published. Sure. That, that's just a personal opinion. Sure. Um, I had a, it was to honor my commitment to Rick and Becky. It was they they encouraged sure. me to write, and I I felt uh, that I needed to do that yeah. uh, to honor that. But the 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 third reason was I was seeing bits and pieces, a paragraph here, sentence here, maybe a whole chapter. Right. But I didn't see a resource, even Cotter's work. It wasn't focused on education, so that was one need I was trying to fill. But I didn't see one resource from cover to cover that focused on nothing but the guiding coalition. Yeah. So I tried to gather all those resources together so that readers would have a single resource that they could go to, but then they could add it to their PLC at work library uh, so that it would complete that. In your, uh, in your book, you turned the four critical questions uh, of learning into those critical questions that the guiding coalition asked and um, they really focused on the learning of the adults in the building, the teams. Um, I, I really thought that was a, a clever way of really embedding the process within the guiding coalition. That, that gets into my idea that I see the guiding coalition very similar to a, um, a test kitchen or to test pilots. Okay. And the guiding coalition tries it out. It's that whole learn, learn together. Yep. So we're going to learn together first, and we're going to try it out. We're going to work with it and see what we can do. What 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 do we need to enhance it, or what resources do we need? Make mistakes, and then have the guiding coalition members go to their collaborative teams and and take that learning to their teams. So it's, and that's how I saw the concept of we're going to try it out first. We're going to learn about it first, and then we're going to operationalize it uh, out to staff. How's your uh, How's your book been received? <laughs> I it, I I could not believe the initial reviews. I thought my name was on a post-it note and got on somebody's masterful. <laughs> I'm serious. Well, uh, I, I could not believe. Because I was a district um, staff member, 
I was not in the principalship. Right. So I didn't know how it's going to be taken, uh, how, how it's going to be received by practitioners. So when those practitioners wrote back and said, I want this book now. Yeah. Just, it, it was so empowering for me and uh, encouraging for me to get the, the book finished. So the only method I have to follow is uh, following it on Amazon. And sure. it started out as the number one new release in uh, education administration. It's amazing. And yeah, it, it is amazing. And uh, I mean, yesterday it was number 10 in uh, education administration. Wow. So I'm in good company and I'm very, very pleased about it, but still much surprised that it was uh, received so well. You know, in your book, you talk about the foundation and we know you and I, you know, know this, but for those who are, you know, new to the process, you know, when we talk about, you know, the, 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 the three big ideas, you know, a focus on learning, uh, you know, a, a, you know, focus on, you know, culture of collaboration and, and that focus on results. And then we talk about the four critical questions. And then we talk about the foundation um, of mission, vision, you know, values or slash collective commitments and goals um, that you talked a little bit about earlier. Um, I saw in your book that you put beside that foundation PLC footings, these actions. Um, and so that's a, a new twist because I hadn't heard that before. And and that's why the graphics in the book are building plans and the yeah. cover is a hard hat and rolled up plan. Yeah. Trying to equate building a, a PLC, like building a structure, yeah. a home or a building or a shopping center or a skyscraper. And I, I, I really like the tool uh, Journey to Becoming a PLC, a professional learning community by uh, Bob Aker and Janelle Keating. I, I love that map that shows the journey as postcards. Well, their, their first um, set of actions were what I, I called them the footings. If, if the foundation of, of the building, if that foundation is vision, mission, goals, and, and uh, collective commitments or values, if that's the foundation, then in a building, you have footings that support and distribute the weight. So as I looked at Bob and Janelle's uh, work, I thought, you know what? If you look at their journey, they don't dive right into collaborative work. They don't dive right into uh, vision, mission, and all that. They have some actions that take place before vision sure. and so forth or the foundation. So yeah. that's where I came up with the terminology of that. So if you look at their work, it's, you know, uh, have a common vocabulary, start sure. coalition. Um, well, and I think I think one of the things that um, that 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 does is that I always say this or I've often said this is that when we start this process, we need to make sure we have common language, right. common, common knowledge, and common expectations. Um, and so that idea of learning together, that's where we start, is learning right. together, building shared knowledge, engaging in collective inquiry, whatever you want to call it. But when confusion reigns, as Rick said, stop and learn together and make sure that we, we have some some solid, you know, as you say, footings to to stand on to 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 start with. In your in chapter four, 
you you talk about something that I think is really important that we don't talk about as much. Um, and it it for me, it has to do with culture, but it's really when you talk about this idea of building powerful relationships, because not, we can't get anything done if our relationships are 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 not built on are built on mistrust. You know, and you talk about this idea of trust and, and transparency. Um, so can you talk about why you wrote the, the chapter on relationships and, you know, how you use it with or how you um, think staff or, you know, districts or teams should really, you know, make sure that they don't just skip over this? Because sometimes people say, well, this is not the process, but it is the process. Well, Connor talks about leading change. And, and he said the second stage was to have a guiding coalition. And then in, uh, in that, that's in 1996. In 1999, uh, he said there are um, errors that uh, organizations make when leading change. The second error is not building a powerful enough guiding coalition. So a guiding coalition can be this collection of individuals and allies to, to lead change. Right. A powerful guiding coalition has to have the right people. They have to work with high levels of trust, and they have to have a common goal for the guiding coalition. So that's that's where the title came from. It wasn't just guiding coalitions, but it was to become a powerful one. So I started to ask myself, how many of us as school leaders have ever formally discussed the topic of trust in our leadership team? Mm -hmm. I think we normally just say, trust me. Yep. And we yep. just assume. And so in that chapter, I tried to include, because trust is so important, yeah. it's one of the three uh, components to becoming pow a powerful guiding coalition, is to either reflect on it individually uh, in the book, it asks you to look at it on how you can improve your own trust um, with uh, within relationships with other people, or as a, a, a entire guiding coalition. Sure. So I tried to combine several tools: uh, Shannon Moran's um, uh, trust, and then um, Fraser's. Um, there, there's some tools that I combined in a reproducible for individuals to look at either as a whole guiding coalition or individually to focus on trust. Yeah, I, th I think, um, you know, when we talk about, like you said, we don't really focus on trust very much and, and it's not something that we talk about. Like you said, we, we just say, just trust me. And a lot of times people are like either friends or friendly and they say, oh, we, should, we have trust, but it really is not about that. We really have to engage in, meaningful reflection to see if we really do have a trusting relationship and a trusting team. And in that chapter, I just tried to uh, kind of put that out there and then give uh, individuals and teams some tools and some things to think about if they if they want to work on that and, and improve it. I um, also like in your book when you start to address that idea of fixed and growth mindset, because that's a, a really important piece of any individual in helping them move forward because they have to reflect on, do I have a fixed mindset? Because if I have a fixed mind mindset, how can I help my colleagues? How can I help um, students? And so I think that's something that that we don't do very often is, is ask people, one, 
to learn together about that that work uh, around Carol Dweck's work of mindset, but two, to reflect on, you know, what is our own mindset? And then I, I, I in my uh, research, I found a third mindset, and it's called it, in the in the grid. It's called an innovator's mindset. That was, yeah. in, and I thought that was something that was nice to have added. Yeah, yeah, I, I really like your book, and I really think that, you know, um, educators in any part of their journey as a school that's operating as a professional learning community or just starting that journey, it really will, one, if you're just starting, it will give you a solid foundation and very clear understanding of how you form a guiding, guiding coalition and what steps you need to do to make sure that it sustains. And then the, the, the schools that may be further along in the journey, I always say, whenever we have new staff in our building, we're a new, a new staff. And so you can't just say, oh, we did this last year. We have to make sure that we're constantly revisiting and, and digging deeper to make sure that we have crystal clear understanding of our role as a guiding coalition and as a staff. And so um, I think your book does that. I think the other, the other question I had uh, when, it came to, when it came to your book is that we have some schools that will say, well, we only have one uh, grade or one class at each grade level. Um, and they say, we, we only have like 20, 20 teachers in our whole school or, or, or 15 teachers in our whole school. Can we just have our all the staff be on the guiding coalition? Is that possible? I believe it is. I, I think the work by uh, Yost and uh, Lean, Rick mm -hmm. Lean on Yost, is really helpful to answer that question. And uh, many times I defer to them. Yeah. Uh, it, uh, I've, I've communicated with Brig uh, with some questions on uh, singletons and small schools. Sure. And what if you don't have enough in, in a small school? And he, he said, well, then you look for the coalition of the willing. Oh, uh, yeah. And uh, so there are ways to do it. it. You just don't look at it and say, well, we're, we're too small to do it. Um, but there, there are times where I think the whole school is the, the guiding coalition is, and, and you served sure. up any kind of. Sure. Who are your, the people who influenced you along the way? I mean, we talked a little bit about your, your, your family who were, um, educators, um, but who were some of the people, either um, teachers or or mentors as you became uh, a, an educator, who were some of those people that you really feel like, wow, um, those people really helped to shape uh, who I am as, a, as an educator? I put uh, several of them in the book. Uh, I had some principles that it encouraged me to get my master's, encouraged me to lead when I didn't see myself as wanting to or needing to. They, they saw something in me that I never saw yeah. for, for whatever reason. So Bill Murray, who took a chance on a young teacher who didn't have uh, elementary ed certification, right. but just saw something that um, I, nobody else saw, I guess. And he, he took a chance on me. And I I've got a three-page handwritten letter back in this bookcase that he wrote uh, when I became a principal. And wow. I never knew the things that he shared in that letter of what he thought. 
uh, it was amazing. And I had another principal who, uh, John Stenson, who was uh, uh, my second principal. He encouraged me mm -hmm. and he, he kept promoting me to, to uh, take on leadership uh, tasks. And then of course uh, I had uh, fellow principals, uh, area superintendents yeah. and other directors that encouraged me. My mother was a big, she was huge uh, because as an elementary teacher, there was, there was only one important thing in life and that was to get a college education. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, that was so important, I guess, because of the, the background that I came from, it was just yeah. something expected. Did you have, you know, and you said your mother, did you have other teachers or, or, or memory of when you were in, you know, grade school of, you know, where you're, were you a good student or were you a student that struggled or depending on the, on the, uh, on the. I was very young. Uh, I was a student that struggled. I'm sure I would have been, had some letters attached to me, uh, you know, like ADHD and that type of thing. I was probably a good B, C student. Um, I, I, I. I wasn't very uh, successful as a student. Uh, if 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 there there are a few teachers that I thought about, uh, Mr. Taylor in civics in ninth grade, Mrs. Bridges in ninth grade, uh, teachers that uh, saw saw some gifts that I had that when yeah. we group work or project work, that's where I flourished. But I I was no good at uh, memorizing dead precedents and dates that meant nothing to me. And so if I, especially in math and social studies, if, if I wasn't uh, showing an interest, I probably got a D in your class, but with the others. So I did have some, uh, a, a few teachers that were encouraging. My English professor, uh, Dr. Rickett, uh, he was a huge influence on uh, my academics in English. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I, I really think that as I said before, we all have, you know, our unique strengths and talents and, and passions. And if, if, you know, we are in a traditional school setting and our unique strengths, passions, and talents aren't tapped into, we could be, we could, uh, be seen as apath an apathetic student or not caring when we really just haven't found something that we're interested in. Like you said, you, you weren't interested in dead, you know, dead presidents, right? And so, if somebody goes through their entire school career and, and we, the adults, don't find their interest, then we, again, we label them instead of looking at ourselves and saying, you know, what do we need to do to make sure that we try to give this student or these students access and opportunities to find um, th their gift and their passion, their strength? And of course, uh, when I grew up, the age I am, very traditional, You answers were right or wrong. Uh, yeah. best students got the best teachers. We didn't know anything about learning styles, nothing at all. Yeah. Um, we do, knew nothing about brain research. I'm, I'm a perfect example of the adult brain maturing in the early to mid twenties, because yeah. it wasn't until yeah. my mid twenties that I, all of a sudden I, I found that I, I was able to, to do these things that I thought, uh, were limiting me, uh, and keeping me from back and but the thing is today is we have all this evidence all this research we know better and and so we know that you know some students um come to us you know lacking certain skills or they come to us from challenging situations and not that we're lowering the the standards 
but we're going to plan accordingly. And so if a student is coming from a stressful home, we know that they probably have some issues with cortisol reg regulation in their brain, and it's hard for them to maybe build relationships or hard, hard, to them, hard for them to focus or remember. And it's not because they're not intelligent. It's because of the situations that they're coming from. And so how do we, the adults, plan accordingly and support that student accordingly? Yeah, I was thinking if I'd had a principal like you, or if I'd had teachers like the teachers that we work with nowadays, you and I wouldn't be sitting here talking. I'd be a veterinarian from Winter Park, Florida, probably in my retirement years. But you know, Brian, I wouldn't trade one second of it yeah, for anything. Who'd ever thought that I would have ended up, uh, you know, being an author and having high leadership responsibilities in a large school district? Never, never would have crossed anybody's mind. Well, Bill, your path is, you know, unique in itself, just like all of our paths. And your path was, was supposed to be this this path, this journey. Because, I mean, think about, um, like you just said, but think about all the you know, thousands of people that you have influenced and even more now by writing this book. And it, it just, you know, it, it's like a, you know, you throw a pebble into the water and you have these ripples and that's what you've done with your career, but as as well with the, with the book. Yeah. yeah. So um, this has been great. I, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, it's an honor. I really enjoyed, enjoyed my time with you. Yeah, you know, at the end of each one of my podcasts, I, I always say this because I think it's really important to say um, my dad passed away about three years ago. And I um, at his funeral, I shared this quote, as I go, I am wearing you. And what it means is an African proverb. What it means is that, you know, anybody that I have you know come in contact with, anybody has been a part of my journey, I take a piece of them and put on me. So what you see is not Brian Butler. You see all these people who have poured into me or who I have learned from. And so, you know, you are one of those people, Bill. I am wearing you. I mean, the things that I've learned from you, your book, um, how you carry yourself and just, you know, we haven't seen each other. I don't think we've seen each other since probably, uh, I think it was in Florida at, at one point, a, a ways back. But um, I just remember, you know, just uh, the way you carried yourself and, and how passionate you were for our profession. And so I just want to again say that you're a part of my journey and I appreciate um, just what you've given to our profession. Thank you. And thanks for the invitation. I thoroughly enjoyed my time with you. Sure. Best with you, my friend. Oh, I, I appreciate it. And so, uh, again, thanks so much for coming on a conversation with Brian and we'll, we'll talk to you very soon. Take care. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. Bye-bye. Subscribe to A Conversation with Brian on my YouTube channel and Spotify. <laughs>